Welcome to Seek Justice, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the nuances of criminal justice. Good morning, Dennis. Morning, Eric. How are you? Good. You sent me an article that you said you wanted to talk about, about how it's called Broken Promises and Lost Funding, How Mississippi Prison Reform Failed. And that sounds right in our wheelhouse of understanding how good intentions of policymakers can sometimes fail if the proper steps aren't taken. Can you tell me a little bit about this story? Well, yeah, Mississippi is a place where I worked or tried to work. I, I went there. The, the people that are quoted in the article, uh, Felicia Hall and Judge Keith Starrett, are folks that I've worked with and met. Um, and um, it started out once again, as we've discussed before, with this great set of promises from the Pew Charitable Trust and their Center for the States, where they've got money to pay their staff to come in and do data analysis. And they do, the staff do an excellent job. They identify the reasons that the prison population is overburdened. Then they recommend legislation to reverse those trends and fix those things. And when that legislation passes, Pew Charitable Trust packs up their bags and leaves uh, without so much as an implementation plan. Oops. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's sort of like they don't, the, the states are so starstruck, I think, by having Pew there and it's important stuff that they really don't. They become very realistic about what it's going to take because Pew doesn't actually give any money to the state. Hmm. They, they they use some of their staff people to do the work and then they leave. Right. So Pew comes in and says, all right, this is a problem, this is a problem, and here's some legislation of how to fix it. Bye, good luck. And without the experienced actual implementers, then you're just sort of left out in the cold, I guess. Well, and... and and no plan to go along with the legislation. I mean, in this case, you've got, they predicted that by 2024, the state would save $206 million mm-hmm. by reducing its prison population. And I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but I'll guarantee you that that big number of 266 includes avoiding building additional prisons, hmm. which means that that money isn't yet committed. So you've got... Uh, predictions of saving this money by 2024, legislatures are funded one or two years at a time at most. And so you start to get into these longer term projections. And then they have the gall to call it cost savings. There isn't any savings. Right. The money was never there. Hmm. What it's actually called is cost avoidance. And it's a, a, a legitimate term. It's accurate. And they don't do it. And furthermore, when in Mississippi, they predicted savings. They took no mechanism to guarantee guarantee that whatever savings were there would be analyzed and whatever that analysis produced would result in dedicated funding for the things they promised. More community treatment, more correctional officers, more parole officers, etc. And this is a textbook case of none of that happening. Mm-hmm. The legislators who are, you know, for the most part, a bunch of rascals who are looking at the types of things that help them get elected. You know, we've talked about that ad nauseum mm-hmm. and they have higher priorities. So are they going to uh, pick uh, helping convicts in prison or are they going to, uh, you know, fund, uh, you know, business incentives or roads or education? Of course, they will pick 
everything but prison right. related stuff nine times out of ten. And what's amazing to me is that all the states that you've been in, and my guess is the number's up to 20, as far as I know, there's only one state that actually built into the law a guarantee of funding, and that's Louisiana, mm-hmm. who has got that part right, but is, you know, and we'll see how they do with implementation with that money. That's a whole nother issue that we've also discussed, which competency of departments of correction actually implement, actually implement even if they have the money. But in this case, You've got in this, uh, you know, uh, article all sorts of citations about what they didn't spend the money on, and you know, it's 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 amazing. I went down there. I did a workshop uh, with that uh, Judge Keith Starrett, who's the chair of the Mississippi Reentry Council, convened with the Supreme Court. Uh, very well attended, probably sixty people, every seat in the house taken, all about system change. Mm-hmm. And I walked through with them these simple steps that you would follow with any project if you're building a cabinet in your kitchen or you're moving furniture you're gonna have a little plan right right and they it's a little more complicated than obviously but very good response to the plan but then they didn't uh they didn't want to uh, put me under contract which certainly that's that's their prerogative mm-hmm. but neither did they follow any of the advice that i gave them for free which was the steps to take to make certain that as you're going through these reforms Make sure that you've got these plans in place as to what to do about it. Make sure you've got legislators tied in. You, it's got to be a quid pro quo or don't do it. And so as a result, you know, they've got all sorts of challenges and they're complaining very loudly. Uh, uh, the other thing I want to talk about is this risk assessment thing that we've talked a lot about and how they handle that. But I'll stop there and see if you've got a, a question or a point. When I was reading the article, they talk a lot about this reinvesting of savings, like you like you mentioned. But it, then it goes on to say, but they didn't reinvest any of the savings. <laughs> like uh, the, yeah. the, whole, the whole plan that Pew came up with was, all right, you're going to save money here and you're going to put it over here to make this other part better, which is going to save some more, which is going to snowball into savings and uh, less incarceration and uh, less recidivism and stuff like that. And then they just took the savings and ran with it, I guess, or... It, they, well, they didn't whatever, invest it. the savings, and they don't it didn't come close in the first couple of years to $266 million. I mean, Pew's prediction was that was by 2024. I'd have to dig into the detail. But, you know, case in point, one of the, the crying needs there, just, just so obvious, substance abuse and mental health treatment post-release. You've got men going into the prison, 85% of them probably, like most states, are somehow drug-involved. You've got a certain percentage of them uh, who are— uh, have co-occurring disorder with mental health problems as well so they've got two challenges interacting with each other you got mental health problems you're self uh, 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 medicating yourself with drugs etc cetera, etc cetera. then on top of you know besides that you got about like most states my guess would be about 15 20 percent of all the people in prison with some serious mental health problems these are a huge problem and if right. you don't address them they're coming back and so um they didn't spend the savings. Instead, they raised federal money. They raised $1.4 million in federal money. $1.4 million, you know, you say million, it sounds like a lot of money. It's not a lot of money. you got 40, 50, 60, 80 counties, as these states do, and you look at the urban centers, you start dividing that pie up. It's $1.4 million over three years. It's $300,000, $400,000 a year. You know, you end up with $50,000, $60,000. I mean, it, it's not a lot, right. you know. To, to be able to spend but they go ahead and they get federal money and when that federal money runs out what are they going to do nothing what are they going to do they, they, they have any state funds and so 
that's an example of, of just not thinking things through. And, and, and on this risk assessment, you know that, that as we've talked at length, there's one of the episodes that, that we talked very specifically about risk and need assessment, mentioned it a couple other times, and there are uh, these risk assessment tools that you can buy off the shelf, meaning they're available, you get some training, you can put them into motion within two or three weeks. The Compass uh, from North Point Institute here in Michigan is probably the best, and there's there's others that are good. Mm-hmm. The level of service inventory uh, written by the Canadians, uh, et cetera. And instead of using those, they get advice from one of their consultants who is going to make money off this. Well, we'll just develop our own. Right. Well, here they are years later. They still don't have it. And there's a quote in the article that says, um, Mississippi's Correction Department had a risk assessment test, but it lacked proof that it worked. A new tool is being used on every offender who enters prison, and it will be used again when they leave. Okay, so now they're developing this new tool, um, and uh, it's being used on every offender. Well, here's the truth. That has not been tested out, and it's not validated. That means that now they have a new tool that hasn't proven that it works either. Right. Now, you can do you can do protocols to test out the predicted viability of a tool and you can come up with some you know decent uh, prognosis but at the end of the day you lack the proof when you use one of the uh risk assessment tools off the shelf it's got proof yeah it goes back 10 15 20 years and so this is another example how did they spend their money you could dig into this it's a, a surprise the reporter did dig in this a series of articles that this reporter wrote and you know it's a very very uh meaningful uh Yes, yeah. set of articles, right? But what did they spend on the risk assessment tool? Was it five hundred thousand? Was it seven hundred and fifty? Was it a million? Over what period of time? And, yeah. and how might that money have been used when you could buy one and turn it on and be ready in in two weeks? Yeah, that's a that's so a big it's, um, it's, that's a big thing in in my industry in the, the software industry. Uh, there's actually a, we use the term uh, build versus buy, where you could spend a a couple of years building a really specific tailored piece of software to fit your needs or you could just buy one off the shelf and it'll f- it'll fit 90% of your needs and then you know find some way to work around the other bits but it's so so tempting uh, especially as someone that, that creates software to not use someone else's custom thing not use someone else's gener- generic thing but to build my own custom thing and uh, so often it's the wrong it's the wrong decision and and again one one nice thing about, especially now in the, um, uh, a lot of the software that we build, like websites and things with, are like open source stuff where you're using a piece of software that a million other people are also using. And so you can feel pretty confident that there's not going to be any huge major bugs in that piece of software. But then, so then, but if you built your own, then again, you wouldn't have that level of testing and you wouldn't have that level of confidence. So that, that mirrors very closely with what you're saying with the uh, risk assessment stuff. Well, and... The, every state says, well, we're different from the other states. We need to build our own. Well, every state is not all that different. Um, and over time, when you buy one off the shelf, you validate that to improve its predictability for your particular state. And so it gets better. It's pretty close to artificial intelligence when you consider it over a period of time. Right. You know, I was in uh, Louisiana, as we we talked, and they came up against the same issue and they've raised federal money and have been spending the federal money. I think it's almost all federal money. So it's not that the taxpayers are out, but I wouldn't be surprised if they spent upwards of a million dollars so far. 
and the downside of, of buying uh, something off the shelf is there's not only kind of a purchase price and a training price, but there's a license price. So right. if you're using the, the, the compass, for example, uh, for every user that is manipulating it, uh, you have to have a license. So you might have yep. 24 or 40 users or whatever, or the level of service inventory, revise the LSIR, you pay by assessment, which is, depending on your circumstance, it may be more or less expensive, but last I checked was about a buck and a quarter per assessment. So if you're doing 5,000 people, it starts to get into some money. But you put that on one side of the scale and you weigh those costs and you weigh the value of being able to implement the reforms immediately because you've got the momentum and the people get the training, et cetera. Weigh that, put that on the put that on the other side of the scale and and, and then take a look at the, the states that have tried to build their own. This is knowable stuff. How long typically does it take a state to build one? How reliable is it? What does it cost? Well, North Point uh, in Louisiana could have put a risk assessment instrument in every prison, every parole office, every courthouse, every prosecutor's office, anywhere you wanted for one set price of about $250,000 a year. So if they're spending upwards of a million dollars to build their own, and over this time they still don't have one that's validated, mm -hmm. right? In that time, you would have already worked <laughs> for four years, and you can uh, uh, end a license anytime you want. It's an annual or two-year, three-year, four-year, five-year license or whatever. But because there's no implementation plan and because the the competency level of folks in these agencies not asking these simple questions is just astounding and there's big money involved you know and these 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 prisoners and their families who are reading the news about this great you know pew charitable trust is coming in and you know things are going to get so much better and mm -hmm. you know and, and pew writes these absolutely great reports right and they pass good legislation but then the reinvestment Peters is not there and then they leave and the prisoners are like I still don't get any mental health or drug treatment I'm not ready to get out I get in the community I, I, I'm one of 150 people that are being supervised the parole officers are beyond the pale of, of just discouraged because there's no more parole officers I mean this this uh, uh, this writer here um, for the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting, Jerry Mitchell, he, he really did a, a, a fabulous job, and he did talk about some positive stuff. I don't want to just focus on the negative stuff, but the, the, the number that he gives showing that by 2020, things are going to be worse than they were when the whole system started. There's going to be fewer people uh, getting the treatment that they needed. This is, and it's quoted, it's unconscionable. Yep. And th this, and it's just public stuff. And Keith, Judge Keith Starrett, who is a remarkable man, just a premier a lawyer, a judge, so busy, so dedicated to the work, such a, and, a, and a marvelous guy to work with. He's out of uh, Hattiesburg, uh, Mississippi, and um, so dedicated. And I see the minutes from the meeting. He's been saying the same stuff for years. He's been writing these reports. He gets letters generated and still no change. They, uh, the, the former head of the Department of Corrections there, by the way, interesting, uh, is in prison, was in prison. I don't, I don't imagine he's out yet for embezzlement mm -hmm. uh, and kickbacks. And uh, the governor 
did what a lot of governors do when they have a, tra a tragedy like that in the head of corrections. They hire a military man, right, right. who's going to take stock of stuff. They've done it in several states. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. A military man who doesn't know anything about corrections. Right. And so he's relying on the people around him, but he's, he's providing leadership, which is important. But where are the details? Where, you know, if, if a military man would say, well, we have a, we have a, a war strategy, right? Now we need tactics. Mm -hmm. We need to make sure we've got the troops move. We've got to make sure that we've got the weapons on hand. We've got to make sure that we've got assignments. Everything's got to be planned out every day, every hour of every day in these large military moves. And they don't have enough sense to say, is this, is this guy, maybe he did say it. I didn't read anything about it. Whatever it was, it wasn't successful. What's the plan? How do we end up actually saving 266 million and how do we get access to that money and it just evaporates similar to South Carolina which you know you end up with fewer nonviolent people in prison you have a more violent prison population mm -hmm. you don't change the skill set of the uh, correctional officers maybe you don't even expand their numbers even though it's fewer prisoners they need more supervision you've got to look at staffing patterns and then there's a riot and people are killed right. and so when I say this stuff is life or death it is yeah People are dying over it's it's incredible and it's so simple when you when you think about what you know what do you have to do to get ready I mean it's not that complicated so is it is it too complicated to to place blame on any particular person or organization for no. for mistakes like this or can you no. can you specifically say look this is the person that was should have been in charge of implementing this and yeah. they failed and so we need to get them out or it's very simple you've got a letter signed, required by Pew, by the Speaker of the House, the head of the Senate, and the governor, uh, others may be in, involved, signing that letter that set forth the promises and the conditions of doing the work, okay? Mm -hmm. Those are the people who are responsible. Very simple. End of the story. And the, the, the remarkable uh, other simplicity of the steps that they need to take place put two very simple things together, and it isn't any more difficult than two plus two equals four. And yet again and again, two plus two equals one. Mm -hmm. Two plus two equals less than one. I mean, it's 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 amazing. It's amazing. And and, and the evidence is there. And this reporter um, is on this thing uh, in Mississippi. And I maybe will uh, contact him and um, uh, encourage him to listen to the podcast and have some interaction. I could talk with him offline, and, and maybe we can use Mississippi a little bit more as a as a uh, example of so much of what we've talked about so far. So it's it's the fault of the of, of the people you named that, that signed the that that promise letter, but they're also the people that are, you know, the highest in the government, right? So how do we, I guess you have to hold them accountable via voting and you know well, the press and things. Public forums, yeah. The media is 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 often the first place where that takes shape. In the case of this uh, center for reporting, uh, that's the role they're taking. But eventually, yes, it's a, it's a voting issue. But in the first place, it it could be campaigns of letter writing, et cetera, et cetera. But you know the the, the better way to do this is in, in understanding that anybody those three individuals that signed that letter, the governor, the speaker, and the uh, head of the house or the head of the senate, they each have a remarkable number of staff people who are certainly sitting around the table talking about this thing, advising each of these three leaders, getting information gathered, looking at other states perhaps. They're not gonna just sign a letter that, by the way, that Pew drafts for them. Right. Word for word, okay? 
So it's not like it's just three people. It's an army of people. There's a bunch of people. You fill a room full of the people that are probably engaged before that letter is signed. These are the people that, along with the leadership, should be doing these these simple things. And and, and here's the questions that that they need to ask. Right? You've got to you got to recognize your history. Right? How did we get here? This is a lot of what Pew does, and they do it very well. You know, where they ask about how did why we have so many people in prison. What are the laws that are affecting this? What are the decisions that are affecting this? But what Pew doesn't do is talk about, in a historical sense, what the values are of the state and how well the state operates. Those are implementation issues, right? That's why Pew doesn't touch them. Uh, and once you have a better handle on that, that's that should be done as they're doing the assessment of the reasons that they're in the difficulty that they're in. If a state like Mississippi values post-release treatment, particularly for substance abuse and mental health, do we need more skill training in order for them to do that? Mm-hmm. Who are their partners? How are we going to pull this together? You know, you've got this big splash. Pew insists, of course, on big press releases and big media events where these three guys are there. And it's like a cut and ribbon thing. And it's light on facts and heavy on drama. Right. But no plan. So you're assessing your current capability to implement then you want to uh, understand what are you trying to get to? What does the future look like? The future doesn't simply look like we have laws passed. The future looks like the laws are implemented well and the recidivism rate goes down. In order to make that happen, what are the things that we need to do? Step one, step two, step three. Do we have a good organizational structure? Do we have the staffing pattern that we need? As I mentioned, are they well-trained? How do we use the partners? Can the partners provide any support, any funding, right? What is what is the vision that we want? And then what are the strategies to get there? How do we achieve that desired future? Partners, organizations, collaborations, the strengths that we have going into this, the weaknesses. For every strength, the question is, how do we maximize the strength? For every weakness, what do we do about this barrier? Mm-hmm. It's an assignment. Who does what when to overcome the barrier? Who's responsible? When do they report? Who do they report to? Put it in writing. Look at the report. Respond to it. These are the uh, other uh, other parts of it. Um, yep, that sounds like work. What? And then finally, and then finally, one more thing. Then implement, monitor, get the feedback. There's got to be a reporting and accountability loop. Okay. Right. Now imagine that you can figure out how many minutes I just spent doing that, all right? Uh-huh. That five minutes is never stated at any of these meetings. It's, it, it's, it, it's five minutes to talk about this stuff, and these three leaders with this army of staff right. should hear. These are the questions to ask, and those three leaders should look around the room and say, did you get that? Do you understand that's what we're going to do? Deliver to my desk in three days, more meat around these bones, mm-hmm. and give give us some timelines before we sign this thing. And let's do two strategies simultaneously. How do we pass legislation? And for every piece of legislation we pass, we need an implementation plan. Simple stuff. It's do- not that complicated. Not easy to do. It's a lot of work. But right. it's not that simple to, to think about it and to plan it. Right. And you say before we sign this, the thing that they're signing is the what needs to be turned into law to, was it just the letter that they're signing? or I, I, I mean, before those three principals sign that letter that Pew wants them to sign, they should have this discussion. Right. And they should ask the 
question before we sign this letter and commit as the three top political leaders in the state, before we commit, we want to know, is it doable? When is it doable? What are our capabilities to make it happen? And let's get that. If you got, uh, if each of those three leaders assigned two staff people and those six people sat in a room for a day, they'd come up with all sorts of information. They could produce a report that was a good starting point show it to the leaders, get some revisions made, three days later have a report, and they could say, well, we can sign the letter if, 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 if. You know what one of the big if are? If we can get a commitment to spend the savings in these ways, Bingo. we can reduce recidivism. Right. And instead, the numbers in Mississippi are going up again. Why? The people who they let out of prison are now coming back. Why? Because they didn't get adequate treatment, the supervision probably is it's so tough for a parole officer to supervise so many people. And I, right. I say that with, with so much respect for them, but it's not enough. And, and, and once again, they don't have a risk assessment instrument, so they're not very sure which ones are the toughest. What are the highest risk? Let's put more attention to them. Moderate risk, low risk, et cetera. We've talked about that. Yeah, they're just flying blind. This is stuff. Yeah, and, 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 you know, they probably have more, uh, you know, some information, and they've been using a risk assessment instrument there, and to some extent, and I'm, I'm sure they all work a little bit, and so you can take a look at the information you have, but these are the things that need to be uh, discussed. You could, have, let's say that the, 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 the day of signing, that you've got a, a, a big event, and you know, the media is there, everybody signs, afterwards you have a town hall meeting, and what do you do as the governor, speaker of the House, and the head of the Senate is you unveil your implementation strategy, your schedule anyway, right? And then you open it up for public discourse to both the media and to the public. You say, this is all great input. We're going to go ahead and revise this accordingly. And you bring people in instead of waiting until there's an investigative reporter that comes by and, you know, does this, does this investigation after the fact? These right. questions could have been asked during the public meeting when they announced the thing. It's it's reprehensible. So you talk about in this particular case in in Mississippi, it's the Pew Charitable Trust that comes that has come in and and outlined some recommendations. Are there other organizations that either do that better, or that are there organizations that Pew could partner with to do do handle the implementation portion? Or does Pew have a have a branch that could Pew expand to also help with the implementation? Yeah, that's that's a great uh, uh, question, and 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 again, to give Pew credit that they deserve, they do a very good job at this data analysis. They do a very good job at bringing the leadership together. They they do a good job with the media. Um, they 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 falter first and foremost when they uh, conflate uh, cost savings with uh, cost avoidance, et cetera. But they do a good job on a lot of the stuff. They do. They. It isn't that they they don't do a good job in implementation. It's that they don't care about implementation. Their whole plan is to pass legislation. That's their whole goal. They don't go beyond that. They say that's not in their wheelhouse. That's not their mission. That's not what their board approved. And you know, I say, well, then shame on the board if that's the case. But yes, they could partner, and they've got scads of money, mm -hmm. and they could partner. Now, <laughs> there's a group that I've worked with for years called the Center for Effective Public Policy that's uh, based out of Silver Springs, Maryland, that has done some of the most astounding work on 
uh, implementation of reforms of anybody in the country, one of the longest successful organizations. And they've published and they've got guidebooks and they've got mentoring uh, approaches and they're very smart. They could very easily, very easily partner with them and say, look, while we're doing the legislative piece, you all work alongside of us and you create the implementation piece. And so that when we announce, we're announcing two things at once. They could do that, right? Yeah. Um, but, but, but they don't. Um, and uh, it's not like they don't talk to people that express their concern about implementation. They do, but they don't listen to them. I mean, one of the articles that uh, we'll put in our notes here is this great uh, piece of work that uh, Mark Maurer and Ty Clear from Rutgers and uh, Dick Green uh, uh, wrote with, with a few other folks that looked at this whole issue of what you know, Pew does and how they do it. It's a great uh, manuscript, has a whole set of recommendations, and they're recommending that we chart a new path that actually does build toward uh, actual uh, reinvestment. This has been published, and and it's not uh, taken advantage of. So, you know, Pew is, uh, it's, it's not to be terribly unkind, but they're a bit of an arrogant organization that believes that, you know, they're the sun, and everything kind of revolves around that, and they don't really collaborate as much as they bring people in the room. A lot of times they talk at them. They might get some feedback. They may publish something. But at the end of the day, they don't listen to people. Hmm. And, and, and again, all in one state, all but in one state, they didn't put it into law that they had to reinvest the stuff. And they know that that's a lesson learned, and yet and that they don't do it. So hmm. that's how I'd respond to that, that question. So Pew works with with states to organize this, to analyze and suggest legislation. Does Pew also work with some of the nonprofit organizations that are that are in this industry as well? And how well does that collaboration work? Well, the, after the legislation is passed, there is a second phase of the work that usually has some small amount of funding for implementation. But the uh, it, the, the the magnitude of the legislation in uh, where was I in uh, Arkansas? It was a 146-page bill. It had 13 different specific reforms. The second phase was $500,000, and it you know they could do like one part of one thing. And there was a, a group that that I actually worked for, the Bear Institute of Justice, that came in. It's a nonprofit that uh, did what we could to analyze this law. Uh, we broke it down into the 13 pieces. We looked at accountability measures and implementation measures, but we had very little time, very little money, and then they were left to their own devices. So there is some nonprofit work that takes place, but it's after the fact. The other uh, uh, you know, part of your question is the, the inherent challenges of working with the state that we've talked about. And, and I consider every Department of Corrections got some really bright people, some very competent people. Depending on the states you're in, you're gonna have more or less of those competent people but even if they're competent, they don't have the capacity to do the work. They're too busy. So you've got to have ability to do that. So criticisms of the state, while you know well-deserved, you've got to take that reality in, into effect that if there's not money for better training, better staff, a greater resource to add capacity, then you're, you're going to be hopeless and helpless before you get into it. In the nonprofit world, it's much the same. But in nonprofits, I think you've got, a, a, particularly in this work, You've got a greater degree of uh, competency in some respects, and because they raise money continually to add capacity, they're easier to work with when you're doing these types of reforms, generally. 
But I will I'll tell you this, in states that I've tried to organize the nonprofits, they become competitive because if there's money to be had, they struggle for money. If they're doing things that are that need to be uh, improved on, they're hesitant to change. They've been doing them the same way. You've got a whole other set of circumstances. In, in Michigan, when the Michigan Council on Crime and Delinquency, where I used to work, organized or tried to organize a group called um, uh, the Coalition to End Mass Incarceration, the idea was very sound to pull in the 20 or 30 groups of nonprofits. Mm-hmm that are all doing this work, one piece or another. Some are in the jails, some are working at probation, some are doing services, some are dedicated to mental health, other substance abuse, et cetera. The nonprofits, unlike the state, they tend to specialize in a particular piece of this. Mm -hmm. And so when you pull them all together, one advocate may be concerned about conditions in prison, another may be concerned about length of stay, et cetera. So you pull them all together. It took months and months and months to bring people together because some of the larger nonprofits fought it. They didn't want a collaborative because they wanted to be the top dog. Right. And as a result, I mean, it, it, it took forever. We got it to happen, and it's 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 doing good work. But what we did was we set up achievable, but fairly audacious goals for every part of the system: reducing the number of people come in, reducing the length of stay for how long they're there, improving the numbers of people that are released and succeed post-release. Those are the three things that you have to address if you want to sustain, reduce prison populations, sustain them. Mm-hmm. Who comes in? How long are they there? Who goes out? Who comes back? Simple stuff. Yeah. But organizing these folks right around this took, took a lot of time. It's a pretty remarkable um, example, uh, I think, and unique in the country, as far as I know, of a collaborative that's dedicated to that. Um, and, you know, we could we can dig into that in, in another uh, episode, perhaps. But, you know, the the here's the fact. There's a bunch of people in this country that understand, they overstand what I've been talking about here. And those people are available to talk to anybody, anytime, to say these things, and they're a phone call away. And yet, they're not called. They're not brought in. If you finally gets around to bringing some of the nonprofits in, but it's a, it's a dollar shy and day late. Because people don't want to hear the, the tough news or... Like, well, I, well I, I got this. I can uh, handle this. No, uh, no, I don't. I'm, I'm good. Uh, right. I'm good. I've got everything we need. No, thanks. I'll let you know. Right. The last thing I want is, I is in, some doubts. I was in, uh, I was in uh, Louisiana at a meeting that uh, Pew held in kind of a typical meeting with 35, 40 people sitting around a big table. And they had just uh, passed this legislation that uh, uncharacteristically didn't just reduce the length of stay of people who were going to come into the system and new for new crimes. But de post facto looked backwards and said, those of them that came in years before, they're going to get credit. And so it created this remarkable opportunity for upwards, they said, of, you know, 700 to 1,000 people that might get out a little early, a couple of weeks early, a couple of months early. Mm-hmm. Well, they didn't have the best data on this because the Department of Corrections didn't have good data. That number mushroomed to 2,000 people. And Pew didn't put a penny into helping those people. The Department of Correction worked double time, triple time to at least talk to these people, get an idea of what, you know, where they were going to be returned to. They had buses all over the state that were dropping people off at parole offices well, wow. because it took immediate effect. And I was in this meeting and I said to one of the principals at Pew, I said, I can't believe that with all the money that you have, couldn't you put some money up to make certain that everybody at least had a stipend for some emergency housing 
some type of transitional job program, something, mm-hmm. because you've got people that are failing in two days, three days, and the, the prosecutors who were lukewarm about the reforms started tracking everybody day one. It was politically just, you know, explosive. Right. And the, the, the fellow from Pew reached in his pocket, took out his wallet, and, and, and had a couple dollars, you know, and, and a couple of chuckles, you know. And I said, you know, this isn't funny. Wow. People are going to die. People are going to die. This isn't funny. You need to take this seriously. And it, I was dismissed, you know, uh, and whatever. So, you know, it's it's not like this hasn't been been said. All you got to do is read the, the Howard, Todd Clear, Judy Green, Eric Cadora report that we'll post here and read it. All you need to do is say, yeah, they're right. You know, we should do this stuff better. No, no. Louisiana, they did it better. At least they, you know, put it into motion that the investment had to take shape. That doesn't necessarily help with the competency, the capacity of the department. The department did get some of that money, and they did put some of it into staffing and whatnot. So it's a good example of things getting better. But the question is going to be, how well is that money going to be spent? That's a whole other round of accountability yeah, when you were talking about how it's a matter of reducing the people that that come in, and reducing the length of stay, and reducing and making sure that when they go out that they don't come back in, I was reminded of um, nutrition, like how it's simple to lose weight. You have to eat less and exercise more, and so that there's more uh, going more being burned than there is uh, coming in, and uh, that's that's a. Um, th- that's a great example, I think, of the difference between the words uh, simple and easy. Like, it's simple to explain it, and it's simple to understand it, but it's not easy necessarily to do it. It takes a lot of hard work, and you got to really put some willpower behind it. Well, and, and, and plus two, similar situation where you can Google sure. a question about, after I lose weight, how do I hold it off? And you're going to get 100 articles. You can say limit it to one page, right? And you can get it all printed, and it's going to say one, two, three, four, five. A thousand different things at the top, also. and it's going to say change your lifestyle, fool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You got to change your lifestyle. It's got to be permanent stuff. You know this. Got to change the whole system. Talked about all those key questions. I mean, these came out of the National Institute of Corrections. These things were published probably ten years ago. Right. These ideas of what you have to do to assess and uh, uh, ignite organizational change that's sustainable. Brad Bogue is one of the writers, a remarkable man, a former prisoner. Daddy was a prosecutor in Michigan, ended up in prison, got out of prison, got his Ph.D., one of the most respected researchers in the country. Great story. And he's the one, one of the key authors of the stuff that I was referring to. He's one of the one of one of his writing is is uh, part of my mentorship. And my point is that this stuff has been out there for 10 years. This is this is, you know, you can print two or three pages. Right. It's not hard. Put it up on the board. Blow it up so people can see it. Put it on the screen. Speaker of the House, President Pro Tem, Governor. It's real simple. A, B, C. Right? You don't even have to know the whole alphabet. <laughs> right? You don't even have to count to ten. One, two, three. It's that simple. And yet, you don't do it. So as, as ever, we always end on a high note, eh? Yes. It's simple to do, but because of the structure of the organization and I guess the people in charge they just don't want to or it's is it a matter of of ego to be to and this idea that I know what's best uh I don't need your questions I I know this already without needing any doubt or self-reflection it's organizational ego organizational ego plus the ego of the leaders that are responsible for that organization you know you know if you want to google something take a look at uh Pew's headquarters in Washington 
It's a marble building, marble floors, glass everywhere. That building full of people, several floors full of people, they're going to say, what, we need to go outside the building to find the expertise? Right. What? Well, when you meet some of the folks who work there, you know, smart, educated folks, they're in their early 30s, many of them. Right. They've never done this. They've never actually worked in a parole office or worked in a prison. They've never implemented anything. They're good analysts. Right. But you've got to understand what your competencies are. It's a complete different competency to be able to do analysis than it is to implement. It's very different things. You know, it's a, in fact, one might say it's a difference between the legislative branch and the executive branch. That's why P was smart to say, well, we need both legislators and implementers. Well, the governor represents implementation, but why am the governor demanding more accountability? You know, that's just a whole other whole other set of issues. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for this. And uh, okay, we'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've just heard, you can support us by telling a friend or sharing us on social media. All of our episodes can be found on our website, seekjustice.fm. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we can be reached at seekjusticefm at gmail.com or via our Twitter account at seekjusticefm. See you next week. <laughs>